for UK investors only. This podcast is in association with Janice Henderson Investors. For promotional purposes, capital at risk. The past performance of an investment is not a reliable guide to its future performance. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as advice. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Master Investors podcast. My name is James Faulkner. I'm the editor of Master Investor magazine. And today I'm joined by Jamie Ross, manager of Henderson Eurotrust. We'll be talking about why Europe is such an unloved destination for investors right now and why that's thrown up some very interesting opportunities. We'll also be taking a closer look at how Jamie manages his portfolio and talking about some of the portfolio constituents in a little more detail. I hope you enjoy listening and here's the podcast. Jamie Ross, welcome to the show. You manage the Henderson Eurotrust. Could you just give us a a brief overview of, of the trust and its objectives? Yeah, absolutely. So Eurotrust is uh, obviously an investment trust, and it's, it's set up to invest in continental European companies only, so, so no investments in, in the UK at all. The primary aim of the trust is to deliver attractive capital growth over time. But there is definitely a secondary consideration of providing an income to the, to the shareholders as well. So those are the kind of two focuses. And very broadly, I mean, we can go into the process in a bit more detail later, perhaps, but, but very broadly, what I'm trying to do is find good companies, find good companies, invest in them and benefit from the success of, of those companies over a long period of time. So that's what we do. And it's no secret that Europe is one of the most unloved markets in the world right now. Um, when you look at the situation in Europe, uh, particularly the, with regard to the banking sector, which is looking really fragile at the moment. Is there cause for concern, do you think? I think it's right to be concerned about parts of the economies globally and within Europe as well. I mean, there's there's several ways we can can discuss this. I mean, first of all, let's start at politics. My overriding view on politics would be ignore it. (laughs) You know, I mean, politics has an impact. Of course it does. We have to be aware of, of political choices that are being made, but in reality, you know, let, let's let's use the example of a Swedish lock company we own, Asrabloy. Are they going to sell less locks over the next 10 years if we have a hard, soft or a medium Brexit? I don't think it's really going to have an impact. You know, are they going to sell less or more locks if we have a benign outcome from the, the ongoing political shenanigans in Italy or, or, or a much harder outcome? Again, the answer is no. And so in reality, politics has a it has a transient impact but if you invest in good quality businesses, that's what's going to win, the quality of the business over time, not, not some political decision. So largely, I try to not pay too much attention to political developments. And I try not to, uh, I try to resist temptation to trade too much on the back of, you know, my view on what might or might not happen. I think I can add far more value with picking, identifying and investing in, in good quality companies over time. So politics, I, I tr- try to set aside to some extent. You point out as well the, the, the fragility of the system and, and, and the economic environment we're in. That, I think, has you know, a, lot more, a lot more relevance for me. And when I think about the companies that I talk to, and, and obviously we meet companies the whole time, you know, companies that we own, we might meet four or five times a year and maybe speak to them over the phone a few times as well. And, and companies we don't, don't own, we, we meet several times as well. So we get a good feel for, for individual businesses and, and, and industries. And there are definitely pockets of economic weakness. That's how I would describe it. So let's use a couple of examples. You know, if I think about the auto sector, there is very clearly 
a weakening environment that we've seen from kind of mid 2018 onwards, really. So it's it's an environment that really is, has lasted for a little while. You've seen destocking, you've seen fear in the system, you've seen distributors not wanting to hold inventory, and you've seen a difficult demand environment. Part of that is due to China uh, and and the demand for premium cars has taken a bit of a hit recently. And part of that is due to trade concerns. And obviously, those two things are are interrelated. So autos, yeah, we've got a bit of a problem. You know, that's that's a tough environment at the moment. At the moment, semiconductors. This is another really kind of front-facing economic activity that when when times are tough and when you see economic weakness, you see the sector getting hit very quickly. And again, if you speak to a lot of these companies that we've either been involved in, uh, in the case of ASML, for example, a high-quality semiconductor equipment company, or companies that we haven't been involved in, let's say STM or, or Infineon, companies like that, there is definite weakness. Again, we see the destocking, the signs of fear in the system and end market weakness. But what we are not seeing is a widespread economic um, kind of collapse. You know, we're not, we're genuinely not seeing uh, hints and signs that we're back in a 2008 global financial crisis kind of kind of environment. So, how would I summarise it? I'd say the political environment, you know, it, it's mixed. It's always mixed in Europe. There's always going to be nuances to what's going on. I'd largely try and put that aside. The economic environment, there are patches of weakness. But but more widely, I think, you know, we're in a sluggish environment, but not a disastrous one. And what you've got to remember as well is that, you know, the, the world's becoming obsessed with inverted yield curves. Everyone's looking at, you know, bond yield suddenly and, and concerned by the, the shape of the yield curve. And the last time we saw an inverted yield curve was, was 2007, I, I believe. But we're in a very different situation. You know, if you look at the front end of that curve, if you look at base rates globally, for want of a better, you know, description, they're at zero now. You know, rates are nothing. Monetary policy is super accommodative at the moment. And if you compare that to 2007, where we were playing catch up, we were cutting rates and trying to get rates down from mid single digits, you know, we're in a very different environment. So I feel reasonably relaxed that we're in a period of economic weakness rather than a really disastrous period. And I feel that the valuations of equities, which we can talk about in more detail, are reasonable, but the monetary policy is key. Yeah. And with, with no hint of any inflation anywhere in <laughs> anything that we look at, you know, why are rates going to go up suddenly? So I think we're in a pretty a reasonably benign environment. I would not be complacent, but I, th- I feel we're in a reasonably benign environment. So I guess you make the, the distinction between the European economy, which has performed quite sluggishly, and the the companies domiciled in the EU, many of which are, are global leaders in, in their sectors. Yeah, I, I think that's that's absolutely the key point. You know, we do not invest in economies Actually, we do not invest in markets either. So those two things, you know, I won't try and predict direction of. But what we do invest in is, at the moment, 41 companies, which we see as either either some of the best companies in Europe or companies that we believe can become better and can become very strong companies. And we also have a watch list of, you know, say, 10 to 15 companies. So it's, it's those businesses that we're far more interested in. And when I think about the, the the trust at the moment and the exposures that we have, if we rewind a bit, if we go back to mid-2018, for, for a transient period of time and, and very uh, a very kind of rare period versus our own history, we were running with a net cash position. Mm. So the trust had about 3% net cash. We're now at about 4% uh, leverage. So what does that say? Firstly, what it doesn't say is that I've taken some big macro view and decided that we're away to the races and I should invest loads of money. It's not that at all. But what it is reflective of is the fact that over 
the last 12 months, I have found more opportunities to invest cash than I have found to divest cash. So mm. I have been investing in the businesses that we own, so adding to existing holdings. And I've also had a very healthy watch list over that time and been adding new positions in. So when you think about you know, my views, if, if we're trying to think about an outlook for the world or for, for the economies or for, for Europe, I, I wouldn't talk in terms of the, the economies and I wouldn't talk in terms of markets, but I would say that that movement to a leverage position which you usually expect the trust to be in, but that movement to a leveraged position reflects that I'm more confident in the businesses I own, the valuations I can buy them in than I was 12 months ago. Mm. And that period of of market negativity towards the back end of 2018, when markets sold off aggressively, that's when we were buying. So that's when we were adding to, to existing positions within the trust. At the moment, investors' disillusionment with the uh, the European market has left the trust trading at a ten percent discount. How does that compare to the sort of the historic rating of the trust? So, if if we look at the trust over a long period of time, generally, as with most investment trusts, the the, the average level has been a, uh, has been somewhat of a discount. Ten um, percent is quite wide, mm. but historically, so looking at the last ten years, the average has been about six percent. So, having a discount is not unusual, and it's not something that, that that concerns us overly. If we look at over that time period, the range in discount has been anywhere between 15%. That's the widest it's been. Anywhere to a premium of about 5%. So there's a very kind of wide corridor of, of where the trust has historically been at. And at the moment, sitting at, um, you say 10, actually at the moment, it's more like 8.5. It's narrowed right. a bit. So sitting at that kind of level, it's not dissimilar to average. It's yeah. slightly higher than average in terms of the discount, but not something that worries us. And the reason that we're slightly higher than average discount versus history is because there is this widespread antipathy towards Europe. One could argue, of course, that, that antipathy is is, is is kind of always present in a way, you know, investors seem to seem to like to kick Europe when they can. But <laughs> but even more so today, you know, when people are concerned about the global economy, when people are concerned about trade, when people are concerned about the cycle, you know, that you kind of kick Europe first. That's always been the historic mm. reaction. And that's what we're seeing today. And when there are generally net outflows from European um, equities, which we're seeing at the moment, trusts that are focused on Europe tend to see widening discounts. And so it's not unusual and it's not something that overly concerns me. But, that, but that's where we are at the moment, about an 8.5% discount. And in terms of valuations, are you finding that sort of disillusionment reflected in European equity valuations at the moment, do you think? So if we look at the market as a whole, mm. again, let's, let's look at the last couple of years. When we started 2018, there was a huge amount of positivity in the market. It's kind of hard to hard to think back in a way, uh, given the, 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 the change in conditions now. But everyone was very positive and the valuations were actually reasonably high. So on a forward looking basis, European markets were trading on 16 times earnings, something like that. And then if we go back to the start of 2019, we, we had the opposite, really. We, we were into a period when people were, were much more nervous. You'd had, had a really tough Q4. Equities had sold off. And so people are more nervous about the economic environment. And we've seen some outflows from Europe. And the valuation of the wider market was more like kind of 12, 13 times. So there's been, and, and now obviously markets have rallied, you know, 10, 11% since then. So valuations are reasonable uh, in the context of equities. But, but if you look at, if you try and compare equity markets with with other asset classes it's a much more interesting picture so let's go super long term look at 30 year 30 year numbers and if you look at government bonds globally they're at pretty extreme ratings pretty extreme valuations versus versus their average over that 30 year period the corporate bond world is a very similar picture equities is actually much more nuanced 
and various equity markets are trading in and around their average valuations of the last 30 years. And by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about dividend yields when I'm looking mm. at valuations here. And Europe, because of this antipathy towards the region, is actually trading below its average level of the last 30 years. So I, I see valuations as reasonable. You know, we're, we're not in an overinflated environment. There are pockets of high valuation, but we're not in an overinflated valuation environment. So that's, that's the market as a whole. Mm. And when I look at individual companies, which again, as I, as I said at the start, you know, this is far more important to me. Yeah, I'm finding opportunities to invest cash. And that's why my, my net cash position has moved to a net leverage position, because existing businesses we own, I'm finding opportunities to add to. You know, if we look at what I've done so far this year, which we can go into in much more detail, there are several good examples of high quality businesses that I've been able to add to. And that is something that fills me with a lot of pleasure. You know, if I'm able to own a business that I want to own for a long period of time and the share price goes down, of course, that's a good thing. It doesn't seem like it. And it certainly doesn't feel like it, even, <laughs> even knowing that you, you get an opportunity to buy. But you've got to take that opportunity. You've got to add to those positions when, when they're cheaper. And I'll give you some examples perhaps later as we talk. But yeah, I feel, I feel that valuations are reasonable and the kind of companies that we own, we're finding opportunities to add. So you mentioned that the portfolio currently has a, just over 40 companies, is it? Uh, yeah, as we stand, forty-one today. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's quite a concentrated portfolio, isn't it? In terms of you know other funds in this sector, you recently sold off around fifteen companies uh, mm. from the portfolio. What instigated that move, and what was the the rationale behind that? Yeah. So the way that I have always run money, and the way that I I see myself as best able to position a portfolio has always been towards the relatively concentrated end of things. So when I first joined the team on, on this product, mm. the manager at the time, Tim Stevenson, who obviously did a very, very good job over a very long period of time, was probably more comfortable running a slightly longer list. So something in right. the mid mid 50s. So when I joined, him and I discussed this all the time and, and, and came to the decision together really to reduce that and to become more concentrated. Now, we have no, int- so it's now me, obviously, but I've no intention to go to 20. I've no intention to go to 10 or anything extreme like that. And neither do I have an intention to stay at 41 holdings, but have one of those holdings being 15% of the, fu- of the trust. That's, that's not how I do things. So I see 40 as a, you know, as a very good number to be at. And there's some broad rationale for this. So firstly, my approach is very research heavy. So I spend a huge amount of time with my analysts trying to understand the businesses we invest in and trying to understand them better than anyone else. That's what we that's what we aim to achieve. And for that reason alone, if we were running, you know, a 60 stock portfolio with another 40 on the watch list, 100 stocks in total between me and my analysts, 50 stocks each to look at, we may try to say that we know these better than other people, but it'd be disingenuous. Mm. So when I when I look at a portfolio of 40 holdings and another 10 on the watch list, so 50, divide that by two, 25 each. That feels a much more manageable level for, for, for having real understanding, not just a kind of, you know, a headline understanding of vaguely what the business does and what the dividend yield is and what a real understanding of what is driving this industry, what's driving the business. And crucially, from the focus on our, of our research, what is driving return on capital and where is that going to go over time and why? So that's a huge reason for wanting a, a relatively concentrated portfolio. And as I said, and I'll reiterate, we're at 41 today. We are not going to 30. We're not going to 20. The, the intention is that we're about at the, about the right level. A couple of other reasons for this. Firstly, as I described, it's a it's that research-based reason. The, the second reason I'd give 
is it's kind of a prag- pragmatism and a response to what our investors want. You know, maybe 20 years ago, people were happy having a predominantly large bit of mid-cap European fund having 60, 70, 80 holdings, you mm. know. But these days, that they're not really. And there's there's many very, you know, very much more suitable products if you want a very wide exposure to the market that, that frankly, you pay very low fees on and have a very valid place in the market. So I see the world Talking about as, passive investing. Exactly, funds exactly. Right now, and, and I can, as an investor myself, I completely understand why you'd want to have exposure to passive. I understand mm-hmm. the, the role that, that that type of investment would fill. But what I want to be is the opposite to that. I want to be properly active. I want to be, you know, aware of what is in the benchmark, but frankly, you know, not be driven by it in any way, be picking stocks that I think are going to outperform. And to do that, 60 or 70 or 80 stocks just dilutes you so so I want to be I want to be concentrated to 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 back up those active credentials the third reason I'd give which is a much more personal kind of emotive reason is that I put a lot of pride in my work I really enjoy the research I do and I don't want to spend two months analyzing a business find it really compelling and then come in and buy 80 basis points and and watch it double and and make another 80 basis points I want to buy four or five percent and watch it double and, and that make your year and, and make yeah. the year for your clients and your investors. So those are the reasons why I feel a relatively concentrated list is the appropriate way for your trust. And which positions have you been adding to recently? Yeah, so there's been there's been a few. I'd split them maybe into existing positions and some new ones that, that, that we found. So in terms of existing positions, I'd start on Novo Nordisk. So this is a, a Danish company that is a specialist pharma business. What we really like about this company is they are extremely focused on one or two therapeutic areas. It's a real focus. So th- this business actually started in 1923. So we're very nearly, you know, it's very nearly 100 years old. And this business originally produced insulin and was a global leader in insulin production. So in 1923, they were commercializing the production of insulin, obviously for treatment of, of diabetes. And they were exceptionally successful. And amazingly, insulin has only become a commoditized product in the last three or four years. Hmm. When you think about the longevity of that business and how they can focus on one therapeutic area, but be the best at it and have a focused R&D department, have a focused sales effort and, and really just become best in class. And they have epitomized that kind of approach. So a long-term thinking company that, that doesn't invest outside of its very narrow focus. And that is something that we really like about it. And so what's happened to that business as insulin has become commoditized? Well, clearly, this wasn't something that completely took them by surprise. You know, mm-hmm. they had been thinking about how the area was developing and thinking about what new products they could bring to market. And they had been absolutely best in class at bringing new products into that market. And there's a new category of treatment uh, products are under the broad category of called GLP-1s. And they are the global leaders. There's, there's them and Eli Lilly in, in, in the US. So it's kind of a, a, an oligopoly type market. And they were at the forefront of the development there. And that is really driving the growth and will drive the growth over the next, you know, the, over the medium term. And again, they're thinking very, very long term. So what are they very excited about at the moment? Well, they've realized, and again, I describe it casually that almost almost gives you the impression that they, they just found this out by accident. Clearly, it wasn't <laughs> the case, but, but their products have a significant weight loss benefit for their patients. 
Now, that is more than a nice to have for, for people who have diabetes and associated conditions. And so that, that weight loss characteristic is becoming extremely important and interesting to them. And they are developing new products that will, that will tackle obesity as a standalone end market. And obviously that market is huge and, and growing very fast and is an area that we all know needs to be addressed globally. And again, they've been thinking about this for, for a decade, you know, that they've been well ahead of the game. And we believe that they will, they will come to market with a, a suitable product for, for tackling obesity in the, in the medium term. And that's what they're working on. So very focused company, very long term thinking. They behave as if they own the business that they, that they run. They, they partly do own the business that they run. And the return on capital is exceptionally high and we believe will stay high. So a classic compounder, a classic business that we think can reinvest at high incremental returns over time. And they have um, been performing relatively well recently. We've been building up a position mm -hmm. there. So we've been invested for a while and have benefited from that investment. But we believe it's right to have to, to be increasing our conviction in that idea. And that's now a top three holding for us. So Novo is a good example. Um, you call Novo a classic compounder. Yeah. And this brings us on to the, the three categories of yeah. companies that yeah. you, you hold in the fund. The other two being... Improvers. Improvers and, and special, special opportunities. Situ situations. Special opportunities. Yeah. Special opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Can you just give us a bit of a, an overview of what you mean by those three categories? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the way to think about this is that I think of our activities as focused on identifying two types of companies. And I know there's three categories, and I'll come on to explain right. how that works. But we're focused on two, two things. And all of it is united by this focus on return on capital. So what we're looking for is businesses that have a high return on capital and a return on capital that we think is sustainable. That's mm -hmm. the first category of investments. And generally, you know, that is where our bias lies. We want to find, as I said right at the start of this podcast, we want to find good businesses. Mm -hmm. And by good... If I'm going to give a single sentence definition of good, I mean high and consistent return on capital. So that's the first category of things we look for. And these are businesses with high barriers to entry, low capital employed in the business, and, and generally high degree of pricing power because of their market position. Novo Nordisk, SAP. A business we used to own is still a very good business, Amadeus. Those are good examples of, of compounders. Now, the second thing we focus on is businesses that we think can become compounders or can become high return businesses over time. So we do not exclusively invest in businesses that are already demonstrating a high return on capital. We will often find interesting opportunities in businesses where the current return profile is actually pretty average. And these are businesses that, you know, if you screen the market by return on capital, you're never going to come up with them. You're never going to find these things because they just look average. <laughs> but there's something about them that appeals to us and something about their business or their industry or the way they're doing things or the, the mix shift in the business or whatever it is that suggests to us that a return on capital of, let's say, 10 is going to become 20 over five years. And I'll give you a couple of examples because I think it needs a bit more explanation. So two examples that are very big positions in the trust at the moment would be DSM and Philips, conveniently both Dutch companies. So if we look at DSM, this is a business that historically was a commodity chemicals company. It made polymers, an area that became very commoditized. They started to move into the ingredients business and ingredients focused on both animal food and on human food. And that is a far better business. There's not many players. It's a niche category where your IP is very important and you are selling to very defensive, predictable end markets food. 
they become a much better business as a result of that shift in focus. And as a result, their return on capital profile has gone from average to decent and we believe will become very good in the future. Mm. And that is a story that we've been investing in for a while and, and we're benefiting from the re-rating of that equity as people realise that this is becoming a better business over time. Philips, similar story. You know, if you think about Philips origin, you know, we talked about Novo Nordisk and the focus of the company over a long period of time. If we do a similar analysis with Philips, you know, originally this business produced light bulbs. Now, that's almost humorous thinking about it, but back in the day, they were global leaders in a very high-tech area. You know, mm. this was, you know, producing filament light bulbs was was niche, was, and they were the European and became global leaders in it. Now, that business became commoditized. You know, you can buy a light bulb now for 20p, you know, so that became a very difficult area to make decent returns and margins in. So they then kind of shifted the business a little bit to consumer electronics. So they started producing, you know, CD players, uh, TVs, mini disc players, you know, those kind of things that, that, again, is kind of almost comical to think that that was a very attractive area to be in, but it once was. That became commoditized too. So they started moving towards more health technology. And this is where we are today, where they're shifting the mix of the business much more towards producing a- equipment for the healthcare industry, effectively. And this is an area where they have, they have pricing power, they have stronger growth than they have had historically and they have a return profile that's improving year in, year out. So again, in fact, they target over the medium term margins to improve by 100 basis points, so one percentage point each year over the medium term. So you can see the rapid change of that business. So again, that's an example of of what we would call an improver. And these are businesses where returns might be low or average, but they can become better over time and they can become very good businesses potentially over time. So those are the two predominant things that we look for. Compounders, these good businesses, or excellent businesses ideally, and improvers, businesses that we think can get substantially better over time. Those are the two focuses. And to give you a broad split at the moment, Compounders makes up roughly 60% of the investment trust, and the improvers is somewhere between 20 and 30%. So the balance, this third category, is the special opportunities. And what we're doing here is really trying to find businesses that are going through some significant disruption or industries that are going through significant disruption. And very occasionally that creates an environment where we find a single stock that is interesting for kind of a a wide range of different uh, reasons involved in that change, that story of change in the short term. And the other other reason we would own something within special opportunities is because that secondary focus, the investment trust I gave you earlier, dividends, you know, producing income. So for example, we have a position in Deutsche Tal. You know, when I look at that business, do I think this is a classic compounder? No. Do I think this is a, a really good business in a very oligopolistic industry with very high returns and barriers to entry? No, I don't. And do I see it as a business that return profile is going to improve dramatically? No. Again, I don't. But I see it as a business that is able to produce a very steady income. And I know that our clients and that, that our uh, shareholders appreciate the, the, the income as well. And so that's another reason for why something might be in special opportunities. But in summary, think of us as focused on return on capital. And we want high or we want low, but improving. Those are the two predominant focuses of everything we do and all the research that we do on the companies. Aside from the very impressive total return performance of the fund over recent years, you've actually managed to grow the dividend by an average of 15.4% per annum since 2005. And dividend growth has been particularly strong in recent years, I'm guessing due to the, the fall in the pound partially. You don't expect that level of growth to sort of continue going forward, do you? So I'll say a couple of things. Firstly, I would love to claim, um, the, you know, to claim that that was that was that was me uh, since two thousand and five, <laughs> producing this this dividend growth that has been absolutely. 
best in class, super impressive, especially for a, for a trust that is focused on capital growth. You yeah. know, that's a really impressive feature of of Tim's management and and a real legacy that he's that he's left is that is is that performance, both in terms of outperforming the market year in year out. I mean, he he left a fantastic legacy, but for me, a slightly tricky legacy of having outperformed <laughs> in the last ten out of the last eleven years or something silly. So exceptional performance both on the dividends and, and, and the performance of the, of the trust. And that, that is purely Tim, not me. When I look forward, yeah, we've had a couple of years where the environment for income has been very good. And, and as you say, currency may have had a part to play in that, but we've had some very decent dividend growth. Mm. So when I look forward, I, I, I see a more muted environment for dividend growth. I certainly intend to emulate Tim's long-term success in growing the dividend. And that's certainly something that, that we're, we're very focused on. But I think you can expect a couple of years probably of, of more muted dividend growth. Mm. But frankly, after two years of a very high dividend growth, I think that's something that, that shareholders should be comfortable with and, and yeah. should probably expect to some extent. But we remain absolutely focused on that primary objective of delivering capital growth over time by investing in good companies, but also that secondary focus of providing that growing income stream over time. And that remains the case as much today as it was five or 10 years ago. And finally, um, I'd be amiss if I didn't mention uh, Brexit with regard to Europe. As an as a asset manager focused on European equities, how do you view Brexit? Does it mean anything to you or do you just ignore it? <laughs> I view it with complete indifference. No, I don't, I don't really. Um, I, I think that, again, it comes back to what I was saying earlier on with my views on political developments in general. Firstly, we're not invested in UK companies. So to some extent, Brexit is probably less relevant for, for our trust, for your trust, than it, than it would be for, for pan-European investment trusts. So that, that is one thing I'd say at the start. Secondly, again, you know, as I said at the beginning, I, I don't see much value to be made in me trying to second guess a political situation and to try and invest on that basis. I think that would be, I think that would actually be negligent of me. I think, and the negligence would be in not focusing on the underlying fundamentals of the businesses that I'm going to own for the next five years, next 10 years, whatever it is. So I'm far more interested in the companies themselves and you know that it makes political developments fade into obscurity as far as i'm concerned because we're long term investors so those are, those are the things i'll say about that but I, I again i'm not i'm not sitting here thinking that brexit and the the eventual outcome of those negotiations if you can call it a negotiation the eventual outcome of that will certainly have an impact but i believe that that impact will be transient and that impact may affect wider economies but on good quality businesses the type of companies that we like investing in it will have a transient impact. It will not have a long-lasting impact. And so I will not devote much of my time to trying to analyse and I will devote no none of my time to trying trying to position the trust around you know, any outcome that I perceive as likely. Jamie Ross of Henderson Eurotrust, thank you very much. Thank you. Don't forget, you can access more great content, including Master Investor magazine at masterinvestor.co.uk. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us by hitting the subscribe button and by leaving a review. If you've got any suggestions about who you'd like us to interview or topics you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at info at masterinvestor.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Before investing in any investment referred to in this podcast, you should satisfy yourself as to its suitability and the risks involved. Nothing in this podcast is a recommendation or solicitation to buy, hold or sell any investment. Tax assumptions and reliefs depend upon an investor's particular circumstances and may change if those circumstances or the law change.
Issued in the UK by Janice Henderson Investors. Janice Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by Henderson Investment Funds Limited. Registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopsgate, London, EC2M3AE, and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Janice Henderson, Janice, Henderson, and Knowledge Shared are trademarks of Janice Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janice Henderson Group PLC.